we're in part five, closing up our series on the resurrection, what's coming. And just to really quickly recap, I've really been enjoying this, I've been learning a lot, but to really quickly recap where we've been, what we've been look, looking at, in part one we looked at the idea that the story in the Gospels, or the Gospel in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the story of the resurrection is a real story. It has all the hallmarks of a real story, not a constructed story that someone would make to try to be convincing, because the story is actually kind of hard to believe. It is, it is really not a story that Jews would readily buy. Uh, starting with female eyewitnesses, Jews would discount that, because in their society, women could not uh, be credible witnesses. You wouldn't have an early resurrection. They believed the resurrection didn't happen until the end of time. And you definitely wouldn't have a human being be God, because the Jews thought that was just ridiculous. There was no way that Yahweh would be a human person. And so the whole account of the resurrection has all the hallmarks of something that the only way that you'd get a whole bunch of Jews to believe it is if they had witnessed it and it really happened. So we looked at the idea that the story of the resurrection is real. It's not a story that you would make up. Then in part two, we talked about the fact that just like you plan for your retirement, or if you're, hey, you're saving up for a new car or something, you, you plan your present if you have a future goal. It changes your present, whether I'm not going to spend my money today because I'm saving it, I'm, I'm doing something today so that later I can do this, I work extra now so I can have the weekend off, whatever. And that with the idea that we are going to live in the future, that we have a, a big life in the future, where we're going to have actually more time than we have now, that that affects how we live now, that we don't live now as if this is it. And so the idea that we have a future life and the resurrection changes our life now, it changes the motives in which we live now. We talked about the fact that the Bible shows us that when we get there, we're going to have a different body, that God is not going to tape or glue this body back together, that our new body will be based on this one, our new body will be related to this one, but it will not be just a rebuilt this body. And we saw in the Bible how Paul referred to it like a seed, that what you put in the ground is not the same as what grows out. It's the same type of thing, but there's a difference between an acorn and an oak tree, and that we're all a bunch of nuts right now, all right? We covered that. The last thing we talked about last week was the idea of reconciliation and reunion, that God is life, and that when we separate from God, that is death. And the image of God is each other, and we separate from God and His image, and we separate from God and each other, and God has commanded us to what? Love God and love one another, and that's connecting. And so in the future kingdom, the reconciliation is where the reunion is where God is going to finally restore our relationships with each other and Him. And so we are the foretaste of that, but we look forward to the idea of reconciliation and reunion, and that we are therefore ambassadors of life now, promoting reconciliation, promoting coming together. And that's why the Bible repeatedly says, do not be divisive. And when it talks about Christian leaders, it says a Christian leader will not be divisive, will not be constantly picking fights and looking to divide, because God is bringing people together through Him. That brings us to 1 Peter 1 that Pete read for us, kind of appropriate. I didn't even think of it till this second that Peter read 1 Peter, but there we go. Sometimes it just happens. So we've been listening to Paul the last three weeks in 1 Corinthians 15. Now Peter is going to come along, and it's almost going to be like he read the same stuff we read from Paul, and now he's going to say, now let me, let me sum it all up and bring it together and kind of take you through where you go from here. So it seems appropriate to end here with Peter. Now, 
just for fun, just so you know, because obviously the Bible was not written in English, this is a translation, that in the original language, verses 3 through 12 is one sentence. One sentence. Now, it's a whole bunch of sentences in English, but in, in the original language, it's one sentence. And so this shows that Peter, although he may not have started off as a highly educated man, became a prolific writer. One of the things that a writer would do to add emphasis would be to kind of show off their writing skill. And here, Peter shows some amazing writing skill as that's one great, big, long sentence. And uh, we can't really appreciate it in English. So there's no, there's no great spiritual lesson there. That's just, you know, next time you play Bible trivia, you'll say, hey, did you know that 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12 is one sentence? And they'll say, no, I didn't. Why? I don't know. Just, here you go. As far as diving into what it means, let's look at verses 3 through 5. As he talks about the living hope, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, again, we tend to it seems weird for a pastor to say this in a church building, but we tend to over-spiritualize the Bible, which is, you say, well, isn't the Bible spiritual? Yeah, but it's a real document saying real things, and when you over-spiritualize it, we, it's like we wash it, all the color out of it. So what does it mean, a living hope? Well, our hope is that we have a future, and that future is represented by Jesus, and Jesus was alive, Okay? And so he's like, because remember, the world's hope is a wish. The world's hope is a wish. I hope something happens. And you're saying, I don't know if it will, but I want it to. So that's a wish. It may or may not happen, but you hope so. But biblical hope, God's hope, is not a wish. It's a certainty. It's not, I hope it'll happen in the sense of it may or may not. It will happen, and I'm counting on it now. I have confidence. So here he's talking about the hope for the future resurrection, and he says, and it's alive. Why? Because we've seen it. You're talking to a guy who talked to the resurrected Jesus, talked to him, watched him eat fish. He knows what it's like. He is witness to it. So he says, our hope is alive. I met him. I talked to him. He was dead. I talked to him. Then he died, and then he came back, and I talked to him again, and he had lunch with us. Our hope is alive. That's what he means. We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope is now alive. That was part one. The living hope through the resurrection, part one. Why? Two, verse four, obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. So two, to gain an inheritance. Well, that was part two. Future inheritance dictates my behavior now because I know that I've got this coming in the future, and it changes how I live now. Future inheritance, that is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Well, that's part three, the seed that is imperishable, that right now what we have is perishable, but the future environment will not rot and decay and fall away. And then that will be revealed reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And that's, that's the part four, revealed at the end. It's coming in the future, the reunion, where the salvation will be finally and completely made. So there's part one through four. Why? So what do we do with this? Verse six, in this, in this reality, you greatly rejoice 
even though now for a little while, sorry, I'm way behind on my things, even though for now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So he says, so you greatly rejoice even though for a little while you are distressed. And that's really important to notice. He doesn't say, and so right now you're really happy. He doesn't say you're happy. He actually says you're what? Distressed by various trials. It's hard right now. But you rejoice because you know that what's hard right now is not the final state. This is not it. And so as you're going through hard times, you say, well, it may, it may be hard right now, but this isn't the end of the story. The end of the story gets better. And so I can rejoice even though I'm in distress. And that's what I love about the Bible. He's very real about real life. That this is distressing. You know, we just shared a bunch of prayer requests. We've got friends going through distressing times. And we're distressed by it. It hurts. He says, and that's, that's part of right now. Well, then why? He says, verse 7, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, this proves your faith. It's a test. Now, we're bad with understanding the idea of test. We think of test as in God's like, are you good enough? So we hear test and we're like, okay, so I've got to live up to something. But that is not the concept of test here. The concept of test here is to make it strong. And he gives the example. He says, like gold. He goes, and gold passes away, but you stress gold. How? You expose it to fire. To what? Make it more pure. You're not exposing it to fire to see if it's pure. You expose it to fire to make it pure. <clears throat> he goes, and so these, this time now when it's tough, it's going to actually help you. It's going to make you stronger. It proves your faith. But the idea of prove isn't, it's that now I have confidence in it. Why? Because when you are forced to hold on to it, then you know it's real. You don't know what you're trusting until you have to trust in it. You know, it's kind of like if you have the spare tire in the car and you're like, well, I think the spare tire works. Then the day that you're driving on it because you got a flat tire and you put the spare tire on, you say, oh, I'm so glad I had that tire there. And now you and that tire have a stronger relationship <laughs> because now you're so thankful for it because now I, I, when I needed it, it was there. And that's the picture here, that when you had to hold on to this hope because things were tough, that's when it's become real. We have a whole generation going on right now of adult Christians in this country who are, it's oftentimes called deconstruction. They're abandoning the faith. And I really think that a lot of it is because they have never been tested. They're, they've never had to fight for the faith. Because our whole Christian conduct here as, as American believers has been to make it as easy as possible. I mean, we, we don't want anyone to, to make it hard. We don't want any persecution. We don't want anyone to question it or to, to ask the tough things. So we've got we've to keep them away from all the things that would challenge them. And so they have never fought for the faith. They have never contended for the faith. They've just been, well, I just, I just believe it because I, just, I get to it. It's easy because this is what I've always been told and I've never been challenged. And it's never been hard. And they grow up and go, you know, I, I don't really see the point. Because it hasn't been something they've had to cling to to make it. And so there's no value. It's never been tested or refined in their lives. And so they don't hold on to it because we haven't had to. 
But when, you, when it's how you're going to make it, when it's the only way you're going to survive, because how do I get through this? Only through the fact that I've got a future that is better than now. This is how I get through my day. This is how I face this terrible thing. Well, and now it's important to me. There's my confidence. And that's what he says. He says, so that it will be tested by fire and it results in praise and glory and honor. Because now you're looking forward to what? The revelation of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 8, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you don't see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. He says, even though you haven't seen it yet, it shows you believe and you have joy in the not yet. Joy in the not yet. Because even though it's not, I'm not there yet, but oh, am I glad it's coming. And so as you face hard times, as you face loss, to say, but not yet, but I've got joy coming. The reunion comes. And that's why when, when we face death, the death of a believer, it says, don't mourn like those who have no hope. We take joy in the not yet. So then it says, in verse 10 and 11, verse 10 through 12, it almost sounds like he's changing topic, but he's not. In verse 10 through 12, he says, as to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ with within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. What this means is, he says, now looking back, the Old Testament, they were constantly looking for the Messiah. And they were trying to study to figure out when's Messiah going to come? When's Messiah going to come? When's he going to come? So they searched and searched. Does that sound familiar? Isn't that what we're doing now? We're reading the Bible, and then we do prophecy conferences. When's Jesus going to come back? Then we read the newspaper and go, oh, looking for clues. Oh, I think that's a clue. I think Jesus is going to come back. When's he going to come? When's he going to come? And that's what the Old Testament prophets were doing with his first coming. It says they were seeking to understand when and what manner. When is Messiah coming? What's it going to look like? And what they found out was, you don't get to see that. That'll be now. And so Peter says, it, they turned out, they found out that they were not going to see it, we would. And of course, then what did they start doing? When is he going to come back? When is he going to come back? And that's why we saw the last week where the writers had to keep telling the church, not yet. I know you think he's going to come back tomorrow, but not yet. Because we're constantly trying to see when he's going to come. And it says, even angels want to understand it. Angels long to even understand this. But he pulls it together in verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. It means don't be intoxicated. It's not talking about just not drinking. It's talking about keep your mind clear. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The grace to come. Now, we're saved by grace. We have grace now, but you're not done. There's more. There's the sermon title. Because he's bringing more grace with him. We're not done with the grace yet. He says, so fix your, fix your hope firmly on that. Be sober. Be, be, be clear-minded about what's happening. 
and think carefully, put your hope on the future. And then verses 14 through 25, a long passage here, in verses 14 through 25, he has this long passage. He starts with, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And then he unpacks that through 17 through 25, and we'll We'll touch on this a little, but what does he mean here with be holy and do not conduct yourselves as you used to do in the lusts? He's talking about don't live like those who invest in this world. He says, before you knew better, you indulged in this world, the lusts, the desires. There were things you wanted, and so you went for them. And not every desire is, is morally corrupt but it is not of this world. He says, and you're no longer to live like those who invest in this world, but instead you'd be separate. We talked about this back a couple years ago, the, the sermons are on the website, about holiness. And again, this is another place where we over-spiritualize a little. We don't understand really what holiness means. So we go, what does holiness mean? Well, it's, uh, well, to be holy is God is holy, and God is like really holy, so God's holy. So holiness means to be like really holy. What does that mean? Well, it means like to be like holy, like God. It's like really holy. Oh, well, that cleared it right up. What does holy mean? Well, so then we go, well, God is really good. In fact, God is so good that he's perfect. So I guess we're supposed to be perfect. Well, good luck with that. I mean, if you've achieved that, part of me wants you to come tell me the secret. And the other part of me, I don't want to see you because you'd be far too convicting in my life. But I'm fairly certain that none of you are. In fact, I'm completely certain. <laughs> Sorry. What does holy mean? It doesn't mean be perfect. If you remember back when we did holiness, some of you were here, some of you might not have been here, but we brought Stuart up who worked up at the hospital in, um, in uh, sterilization and talked about the fact that when, you went to, when, when he had to get ready for surgery, that his job was to get the, the, all the instruments and all the clothing and everything ready for surgery. You have to sterilize it. So there was this long, involved process with an autoclave and heat and chemicals and all this stuff, and then they get all ready, and then they got to set it up. And you set it up in this room, and this room is all, the room has been cleaned, and the stuff has been cleaned, and everything's been really cleaned. Why? Because you don't want any germs, because germs are what? Corruption. And if you get a germ, you know, they open up your body and break the skin barrier, and they get that corruption in you, and then you have what we call it an infection. And that's really bad. And so Everything's got to be clean. It's set apart and shouldn't be touched with anything that would be corrupt. So much so that then if you watch the video, it says that if they, while they're in there cleaning, they bump against the tray, then all that's got to be cleaned again. And it was very reminiscent of the Old Testament temple where the priests had to dress just so and do washings and all that. And the idea was that God's world is imperishable, no corruption, no death, and our world is full of it. And so just like when we are trying to escape it through an operating room, we have to be apart from corruption. He says, and that's your life. It's not about that you're morally superior than other people, but you are no longer investing in corruption, in the things that pass away. And oftentimes there's things we want to pour our lives into, like, hey, I want a new car. Is there anything wrong with getting a new car? No. What's that new car going to do? 
going to corrupt. I don't mean corrupt you. I mean, if you drive it in the summertime, the sun and the rain is going to attack it. Drive it in the wintertime, salt. And if you leave it in the front yard unattended, somebody else is going to have a car. But either way, it's a treasure that has a shelf life. It's going to rot away. And that's everything we have here. And he says, and don't, don't, don't invest in the, this world. Be, come out and be separate from a whole system that's invested in now, in my own happiness, in my own pleasure now. And so verse 23 through 25, he talks about the perishable versus the imperishable. You have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, all its glory, like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. This is what you've been taught. So you're investing in something that lasts forever because you know better. You know that I'm not going to waste stuff on stuff that I can't keep. I'm not going to pour all my time and life and resources into something that's just going to go away when I can invest in the permanent, in the imperishable. And this separate life is holiness. That's what holiness means. Holiness means to be set apart for special use. And it means you understand your life in terms of the eternal, not in terms of the temporary. When I was in college, I had a good friend. We're still good friends. He's a pastor now. But he got after me one day. It wasn't a bad thing. We didn't fight. But he confronted me. He said, Ira, you're not doing right. And I was like, oh, what's up? He goes, you are putting too much time into your youth group kids and not enough time into your schoolwork. I said, oh, really? Well, it wasn't his business, but, you know, we're friends. I said, you think so? He goes, yes. He goes, because you're, you're getting B's and C's, and you could get A's. You could be straight A's, man. But you're spending so much time with those kids, and that's for later. We're training for ministry now. We'll do ministry later. So right now, your job is to be a student. You should be getting A's. And they do the ministry later. And I said, I don't agree with you. I said, I think you're wrong. And again, we weren't having an argument. This didn't strain our friendship. I said, dude, I said, I'm learning. I do have, you, you are correct in that here at school, I have an obligation to learn. Absolutely. I am here to be equipped. I better be. I said, but the difference between getting an A and getting a, a B is really just about, it's not about how much I learn anymore. It's just about, do I put the extra little bit in to get that? boy. I said, but dude, when I get to heaven, or when I get to meet the Lord, in the Lamb's Book of Life, it's not going to say Ira Hall 3.8. It's not going to say Ira Hall Dean's List. It's not going to say Ira Hall Bachelor's of Science and Bible. It's just going to say Ira Hall. And whether I get an A or a B will not be put in the Lamb's Book of Life. I don't get to keep that. I said, but if a couple pages over there's a kid's name that came to the Lord because I paid attention to him, I said, in a million years that name will still be there. And I would rather invest in that. And he goes, well, I still think you should be a student. And I said, well, maybe. The funny postscript of that is the next year we were in youth ministry together and he came up to me one day. He goes, I, I, I need your help. I was like, what's up? Again, because we were friends. We're still friends. 
He's a, he's a good man. He's a man of God. He says, the kids react to you different than they react to me. He goes, I get along with them. I have fun. But they react to you really different. You have such a stronger connection with them than I do. What's your secret? And I said, well, I, I don't know. We're just two different people. I said, but it might have something to do with the fact that they know what my priorities are. And they know what yours are. He went, oh, that's a good point. And at that point, he became a slightly less great student and a much better lover of our kids. Because what is the eternal? And it's easy to sacrifice the eternal for a good thing now, but a good thing now is not good. It wasn't wrong for me to get an A, but it was better for me to take some time to minister to those kids, many of whom I'm still friends with now. They're old. <laughs> but one of them's Pete. And every time I see gray hair sprouting out of him, I'm like, oh, brother, he was 12 years old. <laughs> yeah, you laugh. If you're older than me, you laugh because you're like, yeah, welcome to the club. If you're younger than me, then just wait. I get to laugh later. So we are no longer investing in decay. So then what are we are investing in? Verse 22. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls, that means putting away this corruption of the temporary, of that which rots away. Why? For a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. So I replace this desire for the things that of, of the now with a desire for one another, with a fervent love, a sincere and fervent love for one another. That's my life's focus. So let's apply this. The first one from earlier, does fire threaten or prove? Remember when Peter's writing this, the idea of fire is not metaphorical necessarily. They were actually lighting Christians on fire. So when he says, the fire may test your faith, he's talking about, you know, you might actually be put in a fire. We have not had to deal with that yet. And I don't think we're particularly close. We could get there, but it's not going to happen next week. But we get really nervous, don't we? But it's there to prove. Do you feel threatened? Or do you feel excited about the chance to cling on to God. I didn't say you have to feel happy about it. I wouldn't be either. And that leads to the second one. Sober now. Fixed on the joy to come. We are clear-headed about today. And that's tough because we are so quickly and easily, myself included, every stinking day, every stinking hour. You know, I'm going to preach this message and then you guys are all going to go home and then we got the three o'clock meeting. I got a gap in between there. You know what I'm going to want to do? Be done with the whole thing and just rest. Is rest good? Yes, is rest, rest is awesome. But you know what I want, what my temptation will be? Is to suddenly invest in the now. And it's so tempting because it's, it's instinctive. It is for you too. And so I need to be sober. I need to be thoughtful. Be clear-headed about now is not what matters. Other than in light of the future, the joy to come. And that leads us to our third question. Are you investing in living in the now or in the not yet? Friday, I went out. It was late. I love going out at night. A lot of times in the evening. A lot of times, everybody, almost everyone's gone to bed. 
and I'll just go out. I just shut up the garage, and I went out, and I walked down my driveway, and Chesterville there on the hill, it's pretty dark most nights, it was dark. So I look up, and there's just stars. And I was thinking about this message and thinking about this whole series, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to get a new body here that's, not, that's doing better than this one is. There's going to be a new heaven and new earth. And I asked God. He didn't tell me. I said, are we going to be able to go see that stuff? I feel like yes. I mean, we don't know. But right now we're pretty stuck here, but our body is very adapted to this, this now, right? But I think that maybe the new body, we're going to not need the Hubble anymore. We can just go see it ourselves, maybe. I don't know. I was curious. But I'm excited. Because whatever God has planned is better than now, and I'm excited about it. And it was a nice thought to sit there and look at the stars and go, hey, maybe one of these days I won't be stuck here just looking at it, and I won't have to go try to sign up with NASA, which ain't going to happen. And even then, they, they're not going out there. They haven't made, made it to the moon lately. The not yet. Investing in the not yet. Are we as a church investing in the not yet as opposed to now? You know, there are a lot of churches. There are churches right here in Maine. I, I, this is a real true story. The churches are dying. I don't mean they're dying in that they've lost their focus on teaching the Bible or something. I just mean that everybody is 60 and older. Or everybody's 70 and older. And if everybody's 70 and older this year, in 10 years, everybody will be 80 and older. And in 20 years, everybody will be older. And in 30 years, attendance will be low. And we had one pastor who was called to a church like this, and it was all older people who had a pile of money. The church had saved. No worries about offerings. And the pastor was like, oh, what can we do? And man, we've got, you know. And they said, nope. Give us the service we want. Your job is to keep us happy till we die, and then you can shut the lights off. That's a church that's invested in the now. We just want to be happy. Just keep us content. We don't need to worry about our community. We don't need to worry about the lost. We just want to be happy. We'll just sit here and let the church die around us. Are you investing in the now or the not yet? As you focus on how do I make my life now comfortable? How do I make my life now secure? How do I please myself and those around me? Or is it, no, my life's about the not yet, the eternal, the treasure here or there. That's what he, he said, right? Jesus said, don't store up for yourself treasure here because you can't keep it. Moth and dust corrupt, thieves brick and steel. Put your treasure in heaven. No one can take that away from you. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Focus on the not yet. It's coming. So be sober. So now what does that mean practically? We do do now things, do now things, dim your love for others, causing separation. The Bible says that in the last days, which of course started with Jesus, that in the last days because of lawlessness, the fact that things would go bad and worse and terrible because mankind is bad, that because of lawlessness, because of the condition of the Lord, the love of many would grow cold we are commanded to love. Love the Lord your God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbors yourself. Love God. Love those in His image. We are called to love. It says, but because those people out there are going to be terrible, our love will grow cold. We'll stop loving the image of God. And then it, the Bible says, and if you don't love the image of God, how can you say you love God? 
If you say you love God and hate your brother, there is no love of God in you. Read 1 John. What causes us to stop loving? The now. Now things, because what people do, people make our now miserable. They hurt our feelings. They make our life inconvenient. They ask us to wear masks. That's enough right there. We should hate them. I can't wait to get this thing off. But hey, this is just a now. And we allow the now things to dim our love for others. God is really cool. And I don't mean that like, mean that. I mean, he's awful because he makes me live this stuff. And yesterday he made me live it before I preached it. Like, okay, Lyra, let's take that sermon out for a test drive. But he doesn't tell you it's a test drive until you failed. I got annoyed with someone yesterday. And not a little annoyed. Highly annoyed. In fact, I'd graduated from bugged to downright angry. Because the person, or persons, were just not being nice. And I was like, I'm sick of it! I am done. And one of those people who I never talk to, don't have any contact with normally, not knowing what was going on in my heart and the coldness that I had allowed in towards that person, called me. What is happening here? I didn't recognize the number because the number's not on my phone. But I answered. I was like, that number looks familiar. I should answer it. Hi, Ira. Hello. Barely disguised contempt. And it was a good call. It was a necessary call. And I got off the phone and God just looks at me going. I'm like, yeah, 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 I'm sorry. Had to go back, back and delete a Facebook comment. And I had to repent just between the Lord and I. I said, yeah, I closed off my heart. Because now things cause me to stop loving. You know, you do the same thing. And that's what we got to, because then what? I'm separating myself from that person. Why? Well, because they're a pain in the butt. Well, be that as it may. I'm good at that too, actually. Ask my children. Do we allow these things to cause separation? Because how did God deal with me? I drive him crazy. I'm a huge pain. I betray him on a regular basis. And he responded with what? Grace, love, and mercy. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you allow now things to dim your love and cause separation? Or do you focus on the sincere and fervent love for each other? And will that be who we are as a church? I won't go into the details because we're on the public stream. But in the last couple days, I received feedback from a business in the J area and just said, thank you so much for how you minister to our community. I don't do much. They're not speaking of me personally. They're speaking of the perception of this church as one that cares about our community. I was so excited. Blew me away. I didn't know they even knew who we were. 
but they in a tangible way made a point of saying thank you. We are called to love our community fervently, love one another fervently, intentionally. That's what we need to be as a church. That's what it means to be salt and light. That's what it means to be a city on the hill. That's what it means to be agents of life in a world that is focused on death. And so we need to not be part of ripping and tearing the image of God, image bearers, and showing the love of God. The Bible says that then we will always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us. They'll say, why are you different? Why are you nice? And when they say, man, your church is nice, I'll say, no, actually we're not. <laughs> not a nice person in the bunch. I know them all. But they're loved of God and have reflected that. You are not seeing nice people. You are seeing Jesus in people. I do not have niceness in me but I have Jesus in me and you are seeing him. Oh, that is the reason for the hope in me. And he would love to love you and reconcile with you as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your patience with us, for loving us, for being gentle with us, for forgiving us again and again and again. And even just starting the whole process while we were still sinners, while we were in open rebellion, you came and you died for us and we didn't do a thing to deserve it and we still haven't. And we still don't. And yet you forgive us and you redeemed us by your blood shed on the cross and made perfect in the victory of the resurrection. And may we fix our lives on that and knowing that, man, for a little while, this is going to be rough. And we face things, whether it be a cancer diagnosis or an employment struggle or a relationship tension, governmental issues, or even global pandemics. And we will encounter the sinfulness of our race and the grace and mercy and love of God. Lord, keep us focused on you, sober in spirit and looking forward to the day that you're going to set this to right. And living that joy now in a way that attracts others. May we as the Beans Corner Church be known in our area and further known for being different than a world that's always trying to win, that's always trying to beat their enemies, that is actively trying to hate, denigrate anyone that isn't as right as we are. May we stand apart and be beacons of hope like a city on a hill. Thank you, Father for demonstrating that by living it and then gently encouraging us to keep working on it. Lord, you know that I continually fail as we all are. But may we work together. May we be your people. Salt and light in the greater Franklin County area. We look forward to the day that we get to see you. And even though we don't see you yet, we love you because you love this first. Oh, thank you, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.